Chapter Eight of The Warden. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Warden by Anthony Trollope. Chapter Eight. Plumstead Episcopi. The reader must now be requested to visit the rectory of Plumstead Episcopi, and as it is as yet still early morning, to ascend again with us into the bedroom of the archdeacon. The mistress of the mansion was at her toilet, on which we will not dwell with profane eyes, but proceed into a small inner room, where the doctor dressed and kept his boots and sermons. And here we will take our stand, premising that the door of the room was so open as to admit of a conversation between our reverend Adam and his valued Eve. "'It's all your own fault, Archdeacon,' said the latter. I told you from the beginning how it would end, and Papa has no one to thank but you. Good gracious, my dear, said the doctor, appearing at the door of his dressing-room with his face and head enveloped in the rough towel which he was violently using. How can you say so? I'm doing my very best. I wish you had never done so much, said the lady, interrupting him. If you'd just have let John Bold come and go there as he and Papa liked, he and Eleanor would have been married by this time, and we should not have heard one word about all this affair. But, my dear, oh, it's all very well, Archdeacon, and of course you're right. I don't for a moment think you'll ever admit that you could be wrong, but the fact is you've brought this young man down upon Papa by huffing him as you've done. "'But my love, and all because you didn't like John Bold for a brother-in-law. "'How is she ever to do better? "'Papa hasn't got a shilling, and though Eleanor is well enough, "'she has not at all a taking style of beauty. "'I'm sure I don't know how she's to do better than marry John Bold, "'or as well, indeed,' added the anxious sister, "'giving the last twist to her last shoestring. "'Dr. Grantly felt keenly the injustice of this attack.' But what could he say? He certainly had huffed John Bold, he certainly had objected to him as a brother-in-law, and a very few months ago the very idea had excited his wrath. But now matters were changed. John Bold has shown his power, and though he was as odious as ever to the archdeacon, power is always respected, and the reverend dignitary began to think that such an alliance might not have been imprudent. Nevertheless, his motto was still, no surrender. He would still fight it out. He believed confidently in Oxford, in the bench of bishops, in Sir Abraham Haphazard, and in himself, and it was only when alone with his wife that doubts of defeat ever beset him. He once more tried to communicate this confidence to Mrs. Grantly, and for the twentieth time began to tell her of Sir Abraham. Oh, Sir Abraham! said she, collecting all her house-keys into her basket before she descended. Sir Abraham won't get Eleanor a husband. Sir Abraham won't get Papa another income when he has been warreded out of the hospital. Mark what I tell you, Archdeacon. While you and Sir Abraham are fighting, Papa will lose his preferment. And what will you do then with him and Eleanor on your hands? Besides, who's to pay Sir Abraham? I suppose he won't take the case up for nothing." And so the lady descended to family worship among her children and servants, the pattern of a good and prudent wife. Dr. Grantly was blessed with a happy, thriving family. There were first three boys, now at home from school for the holidays. They were called, respectively, Charles James, Henry, and Samuel. The two younger, there were five in all, were girls, 
the elder florinda bore the name of the archbishop of york's wife whose godchild she was and the younger had been christened grizel after a sister of the archbishop of canterbury the boys were all clever and gave good promise of being well able to meet the cares and trials of the world and yet they were not alike in their dispositions and each had his individual character and each his separate admirers among the doctor's friends charles james was an exact and careful boy he never committed himself he knew well how much was expected from the eldest son of the archdeacon of barchester and was therefore mindful not to mix too freely with other boys he had not the great talents of his younger brothers but he exceeded them in judgment and propriety of demeanour his fault if he had one was an over-attention to words instead of things there was a thought too much finesse about him and as even his father sometimes told him he was too fond of a compromise the second was the archdeacon's favourite son and henry was indeed a brilliant boy the versatility of his genius was surprising and the visitors at plumstead episcopi were often amazed at the marvellous manner in which he would when called on adapt his capacity to apparently most uncongenial pursuits he appeared once before a large circle as luther the reformer and delighted them with the perfect manner in which he assumed the character and within three days he again astonished them by acting the part of a capuchin friar to the very life for this last exploit his father gave him a golden guinea and his brothers said the reward had been promised beforehand in the event of the performance being successful he was also sent on a tour into devonshire a treat which the lad was most anxious of enjoying his father's friends there however did not appreciate his talents and sad accounts were sent home of the perversity of his nature he was a most courageous lad game to the backbone it was soon known both at home where he lived and within some miles of barchester cathedral and also at westminster where he was at school that young henry could box well and would never own himself beat other boys would fight while they had a leg to stand on but he would fight with no leg at all those backing him would sometimes think him crushed by the weight of blows and faint with loss of blood and his friends would endeavour to withdraw him from the contest but no henry never gave in was never weary of the battle the ring was the only element in which he seemed to enjoy himself and while other boys were happy in the number of their friends he rejoiced most in the multitude of his foes his relations could not but admire his pluck but they sometimes were forced to regret that he was inclined to be a bully and those not so partial to him as his father was observed with pain that though he could fawn to the masters and the archdeacon's friends he was imperious and masterful to the servants and the poor but perhaps samuel was the general favourite and dear little soapy as he was familiarly called was as engaging a child as ever fond mother petted he was soft and gentle in his manners and attractive in his speech the tone of his voice was melody and every action was a grace unlike his brothers he was courteous to all he was affable to the lowly and meek even to the very scullery maid he was a boy of great promise minding his books and delighting the hearts of his masters his brothers however were not particularly fond of him they would complain to their mother that soapy's civility all meant something they thought that his voice was too often listened to at plumstead episcopi and evidently feared that as he grew up he would have more weight in the house than either of them 
There was therefore a sort of agreement among them to put young Soapy down. This, however, was not so easy to be done. Samuel, though young, was sharp. He could not assume the stiff decorum of Charles James, nor could he fight like Henry, but he was a perfect master of his own weapons, and contrived in the teeth of both of them to hold the place which he had assumed. Henry declared that he was a false, cunning creature, and Charles James, though he always spoke of him as his dear brother Samuel, was not slow to say a word against him when opportunity offered. To speak the truth, Samuel was a cunning boy, and those even who loved him best could not but own that for one so young he was too adroit in choosing his words, and too skilled in modulating his voice. The two little girls, Florinda and Grizel, were nice little girls enough, but they did not possess the strong, sterling qualities of their brothers. Their voices were not often heard at Plumstead Episcopi. They were bashful and timid by nature, slow to speak before company even when asked to do so, and though they looked very nice in their clean white muslin frocks and pink sashes, they were but little noticed by the archdeacon's visitors. Whatever of submissive humility may have appeared in the gait and visage of the archdeacon during his colloquy with his wife in the sanctum of their dressing-rooms was dispelled as he entered his breakfast-parlour with erect head and powerful step. In the presence of a third person he assumed the lord and master, and that wise and talented lady too well knew the man to whom her lot for life was bound to stretch her authority beyond the point at which it would be borne. Strangers at Plumstead Episcopi, when they saw the imperious brow with which he commanded silence from the large circle of visitors, children, and servants who came together in the morning to hear him read the word of God, and watched how meekly that wife seated herself behind her basket of keys with a little girl on each side, as she caught that commanding glance. Strangers, I say, seeing this, could little guess that some fifteen minutes since she had stoutly held her ground against him, hardly allowing him to open his mouth in his own defense. But such is the tact and talent of women. And now let us observe the well-furnished breakfast parlor at Plumstead Episcopi, and the comfortable air of all the belongings of the rectory. Comfortable they certainly were, but neither gorgeous nor even grand. Indeed, considering the money that had been spent there, the eye and taste might have been better served. There was an air of heaviness about the rooms which might have been avoided without any sacrifice of propriety. Colors might have been better chosen, and lights more perfectly diffused. But perhaps in doing so, the thorough clerical aspect of the whole might have been somewhat marred. At any rate, it was not without ample consideration that those thick, dark, costly carpets were put down, those embossed but somber papers hung up, those heavy curtains draped so as to half exclude the light of the sun. Nor were these old-fashioned chairs bought at a price far exceeding that now given for more modern goods, without a purpose. The breakfast surface on the table was equally costly and equally plain. The apparent object had been to spend money without obtaining brilliancy or splendor. The urn was of thick and solid silver, as were also the teapot, coffee-pot, cream ewer, and sugar-bowl. The cups were old, dim dragon china, worth about a pound apiece, but very despicable in the eyes of the uninitiated. The silver forks were so heavy as to be disagreeable to the hand, and the bread-basket was of a weight really formidable to any but robust persons. The tea consumed was the very best, the coffee the very blackest, the cream the very thickest, 
There was dry toast and buttered toast, muffins and crumpets, hot bread and cold bread, white bread and brown bread, homemade bread and baker's bread, wheaten bread and oaten bread, and if there be other breads than these, they were there. There were eggs in napkins, and crispy bits of bacon under silver covers, and there were little fishes in a little box, and deviled kidneys frizzling on a hot water dish, which, by the by, were placed closely contiguous to the plate of the worthy archdeacon himself. Over and above this, on a snow-white napkin, spread upon the sideboard, was a huge ham and a huge sirloin, the latter having laden the dinner-table on the previous evening. Such was the ordinary fare at Plumstead Episcopi. And yet I have never found the rectory a pleasant house. The fact that man shall not live by bread alone seemed to be somewhat forgotten, and noble as was the appearance of the host, and sweet and good-natured as was the face of the hostess, talented as were the children, and excellent as were the viands and the wines, in spite of these attractions I generally found the rectory somewhat dull. After breakfast the archdeacon would retire, of course to his clerical pursuits. Mrs. Grantley, I presume, inspected her kitchen, though she had a first-rate housekeeper with sixty pounds a year and attended to the lessons of Florinda and Grizel, though she had an excellent governess with thirty pounds a year. But at any rate she disappeared, and I never could make companions of the boys. Charles James, though he always looked as though there was something in him, never seemed to have much to say, and what he did say he would always unsay the next minute. He told me once that he considered cricket, on the whole, to be a gentlemanlike game for boys, provided they would play without running about and that fives also was a seemly game, so that those who played it never heeded themselves. Henry once quarreled with me for taking his sister Grizel's part in a contest between them as to the best mode of using a watering-pot for the garden flowers, and from that day to this he has not spoken to me, though he speaks at me often enough. For half an hour or so I certainly did like Sammy's gentle speeches, but one gets tired of honey, and I found that he preferred the more admiring listeners whom he met in the kitchen garden and back precincts of the establishment. Besides, I think I once caught Sammy fibbing. On the whole, therefore, I found the rectory a dull house, though it must be admitted that everything there was of the very best. After breakfast, on the morning of which we are writing, the archdeacon, as usual, retired to his study, intimating that he was going to be very busy, but that he would see Mr. Chadwick if he called. On entering this sacred room, he carefully opened the paper case on which he was wont to compose his favorite sermon, and spread on it a fair sheet of paper and one partly written on. He then placed his inkstand, looked at his pen, and folded his blotting paper. Having done so, he got up again from his seat, stood with his back to the fireplace, and yawned comfortably, stretching out vastly his huge arms and opening his burly chest. He then walked across the room and locked the door, and having so prepared himself, he threw himself into his easy-chair, took from a secret drawer beneath his table a volume of Rabelais, and began to amuse himself with the witty mischief of Panurge, and so passed the archdeacon's morning on that day. He was left undisturbed at his studies for an hour or two when a knock came to the door, and Mr. Chadwick was announced. Rabelais retired into the secret drawer, the easy-chair seemed knowingly to betake itself off, and when the archdeacon quickly undid his bolt, he was discovered by the steward working, as usual, for that church of which he was so useful a pillar. 
Mr. Chadwick had just come from London and was therefore known to be the bearer of important news. "'We've got Sir Abraham's opinion at last,' said Mr. Chadwick as he seated himself. "'Well, well, well!' exclaimed the archdeacon impatiently. "'Oh, it's as long as my arm,' said the other. "'It can't be told in a word, but you can read it.' and he handed him a copy, in heaven knows how many spun-out folios, of the opinion which the Attorney General had managed to cram on the back and sides of the case as originally submitted to him. "'The upshot is,' said Chadwick, "'that there's a screw loose in their case, and we had better do nothing. They're proceeding against Mr. Harding and myself, and Sir Abraham holds that under the wording of the will, and subsequent arrangements legally sanctioned, Mr. Harding and I are only paid servants.' The defendants should have been either the Corporation of Barchester or possibly the chapter of your father. Woohoo! said the archdeacon. So Master Bold is on the wrong scent, is he? That's Sir Abraham's opinion, but any scent almost would be a wrong scent. Mr. Abraham thinks that if they'd taken the corporation or the chapter, we could have baffled them. The bishop, he thinks, would be the surest shot, but even there we could plead that the bishop is only a visitor, and that he has never made himself a consenting party to the performance of other duties. That's quite clear, said the archdeacon. Not quite so clear, said the other. You see, the will says, My lord the bishop, being graciously pleased to see that due justice be done. Now, it may be a question whether, in accepting and administering the patronage, your father has not accepted also the other duties assigned. It is doubtful, however, but even if they hit that nail, and they are far off from that yet, the point is so nice, as Sir Abraham says, that you would force them into £15,000 cost before they could bring it to an issue. And where's that sum of money to come from? The archdeacon rubbed his hands with delight. He had never doubted the justice of his case, but he had begun to have some dread of unjust success on the part of his enemies. It was delightful to him thus to hear that their cause was surrounded with such rocks and shoals, such causes of shipwreck unseen by the landsman's eye, but visible enough to the keen eyes of practical law mariners. How wrong his wife was to wish that Bold should marry Eleanor. Bold! Why, if he should be ass enough to persevere, he would be a beggar before he knew whom he was at law with. That's excellent, Chadwick, that's excellent. I told you Sir Abraham was the man for us. And he put down on the table the copy of the opinion and patted it fondly. Don't you let that be seen, though, Archdeacon. Who? I? Not for worlds, said the doctor. People will talk, you know, Archdeacon. Of course, of course, said the doctor because if that gets abroad, it would teach them how to fight their own battle. Quite true, said the doctor. No one here in Barchester ought to see that but you and I, Archdeacon. No, no, certainly no one else, said the Archdeacon, pleased with the closeness of the confidence. No one else shall. Mrs. Grantley is very interested in the matter, I know, said Mr. Chadwick. Did the Archdeacon wink, or did he not? I'm inclined to think that he did not quite wink, but that without such perhaps unseemly gesture he communicated to Mr. Chadwick with the corner of his eye intimation that, deep as was Mrs. Grantley's interest in the matter, it should not procure for her a perusal of that document. And at the same time he partly opened the small drawer, above spoken of, deposited the paper on the volume of Rabelais, and showed to Mr. Chadwick the nature of the key which guarded these hidden treasures. 
the careful steward then expressed himself contented ah vain man he could fasten up his rabelais and other things secret with all the skill of brahma or of chubb but where could he fasten up the key which solved these mechanical mysteries it is probable to us that the contents of no drawer in that house were unknown to its mistress and we think moreover that she was entitled to all such knowledge but said mr chadwick we must of course tell your father and mr harding so much of sir abraham's opinion as will satisfy them that the matter is doing well oh certainly yes of course said the doctor you'd better let them know that sir abraham is of opinion that there's no case at any rate against mr harding and that as the action is worded at present it must fall to the ground they must be non-suited if they carry on you'd better tell mr harding that sir abraham is clearly of opinion that he's only a servant and as such not liable or if you like it i'll see mr harding myself oh i must see him to-morrow and my father too and i'll explain to them exactly so much you won't go before lunch mr chadwick well if you will you must for i know your time is precious and he shook hands with the diocesan steward and bowed him out the archdeacon had again recourse to his drawer and twice read through the essence of sir abraham haphazard's law enlightened and law bewildered brains it was very clear that to sir abraham the justice of the old men's claim or the justice of mr harding's defence were ideas that had never presented themselves a legal victory over an opposing party was the service for which sir abraham was as he imagined to be paid and that he according to his lights had diligently labored to achieve and with probable hope of success of the intense desire which mr harding felt to be assured on fit authority that he was wronging no man that he was entitled in true equity to his income that he might sleep at night without pangs of conscience that he was no robber no spoiler of the poor that he and all the world might be openly convinced that he was not the man which the jupiter had described him to be of such longings on the part of mr harding sir abraham was entirely ignorant nor indeed could it be looked on as part of his business to gratify such desires such was not the system on which his battles were fought and victories gained success was his object and he was generally successful he conquered his enemies by their weakness rather than by his own strength and it had been found almost impossible to make up a case in which sir abraham as an antagonist would not find a flaw the archdeacon was delighted with the closeness of the reasoning to do him justice it was not a selfish triumph that he desired he would personally lose nothing by defeat or at least what he might lose did not actuate him but neither was it love of justice which made him so anxious nor even mainly solitude for his father-in-law he was fighting a part of a never-ending battle against a never-conquered foe that of the church against its enemies he knew mr harding could not pay all the expense of these doings for these long opinions of sir abraham's these causes to be pleaded these speeches to be made these various courts through which the case was he presumed to be dragged he knew that he and his father must at least bear the heavier portion of this tremendous cost but to do the archdeacon justice he did not recoil from this he was a man fond of obtaining money greedy of a large income but open-handed enough in expending it and it was a triumph to him to foresee the success of this measure although he might be called on to pay so dearly for it himself End of chapter eight 
Recording by Jessica Louise, St. Paul, Minnesota.